Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. Our evacuation is underway. It is a critical time in the global efforts to contain and limit the outbreak. Dominic Barton was directly asked about the Canadians being detained in Beijing. The chill is real. We're very angry because of our people that have been taken. China's very angry as well, furious. The World Health Organization says the numbers have surged globally. The epidemic has a growing impact on the economy, says this Chinese official. We're advising against all non-essential travel to China. It's Sunday, February 9th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block. Some Canadians are now home on Canadian soil, having been repatriated from China's lockdown Hubei province. They're being quarantined at CFB Trenton in Ontario for two weeks. A second plane is expected to bring more home soon. This has been an exercise of diplomacy at the highest levels. I sat down with Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne about how it all unfolded. Minister, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you give us an update on the latest in terms of how many Canadians have made it home from China to Canada and how many are still waiting to get, in particular, out of places like Wuhan that are under quarantine? So we have about two-thirds of Canadians who have made it back home. Uh, we had 174 on the first flight, uh, which uh, left Wuhan and, as you know, uh, refueled in Vancouver and then went on to Trenton. And what we call the second one, which was the U.S. flight, we had 39 uh, Canadian uh, citizens on that flight, uh, which are uh, also in Trenton. So uh, by the count, we have 213 uh, Canadians which have now been repatriated. Now, the number of Canadians who want to come back, obviously, is fluctuating. You may remember I said it was about 350 uh, because some people decide uh, to stay. Some people have decided to come with us. Some change their minds. So uh, the good thing is that with the second Canadian flight, uh, we will be able to bring back home everyone who wants to come back. I have to ask you, what took so long? Because other countries had their citizens out before. You know that there are almost two dozen flights going back and forth between Vancouver and China alone a day. A lot of Canadians who travel there for business, who have family there. And yet we were one of the last countries to get our citizens evacuated. And they're still not all out. I would say it, it depends. Let me just give you a sense of perspective. So the first flight out uh, was a U.S. flight. Uh, but this was a U.S. flight under the Vienna Convention. As you know, the Americans were repatriating consular officials with their families. Uh, they had a convoy uh, throughout Wuhan, which was a diplomatic convoy. And if I look, it took about seven to eight days uh, to the United States to get all the permission. Um, when you have an emergency like that, you have three steps. First, you need to assess the needs. And when we started, we had two Canadians who wanted to be repatriated. And that number spiked in the same day, I think on the 27th, 250. At that point, we said, obviously, we need to charter a plane, which was step two. And then we needed to work to get the authorizations and the ground logistics, because for people who are watching, uh, getting the plane in China is one thing. Getting people from their residence to the airport in Wuhan is something else, because we need to coordinate, obviously, provide the manifest to the Chinese authorities and make sure that uh, we provide the plate number, the vehicle number, because you know, from, from their residence to the airport, you could have like 20 checkpoints where people were asking. And, and we learned from best practice. I can tell you our boarding was the easiest of every nation they had in Wuhan Airport. 
uh, because it was well coordinated. That, I, I understand it's, it's complicated getting people to the airport and getting them out, but do you wish that perhaps you'd started the process earlier, or do you think that you underestimated the severity of what was going to happen both in terms of the outbreak and the Chinese government's reaction? So what I wish really is when Canadians travel abroad that they would register uh, voluntarily to the website of Global Affairs because that's how we know how many people we have and that's how we can get in touch with people. Like I said, the first day when uh, we were looking at the situation, we had two people out of the number we have in Hubei who wanted, you know, we have about 15,000. But you 000. know there's more than that in the country for sure. No, but many have decided not to come back. And, and therefore, that number has been, as you know, we've been very transparent giving the numbers. And from the time we secured the plane to the time we landed in Wuhan, we had a weather situation, and I'll accept that in a sense. Uh, when our plane tried to leave, we had crosswinds, which was above tolerance that we could not take off. Uh, we missed the slot, as you know. I just want to provide context so Canadians understand. Um, the repatriation flight can only land during the night. Uh, during the day, the airspace is used by the People Liberation Army to bring food supplies, medical equipment, and troops in Wuhan. Ambassador Dominic Barton, appointed by your government recently to China, he's the former head of McKinsey International, a big consulting firm. He made his first appearance in front of a parliamentary committee last week. During that appearance, he said that Hussein Salil, uh, a Canadian citizen who is detained in China and jailed, a Uyghur activist, is not, in fact, a Canadian citizen. That's the line of the government in Beijing. He also has extensive ties in the past with business, uh, which could make him very influential, but also has worked with Chinese state corporations. A lot of people are questioning whether he's too close to China. Do you regret his appointment as an ambassador, or do you still think he's able to get the job done? No, I, I salute his appointment. We're lucky that we have Canadians who had broad experience in China who wants to serve. Uh, everyone would agree that Dominic Barton had an exceptional career, was president of McKinsey International, um, retired, decided to come serve Canadians, bring his wealth of experience with respect to China. Uh, I would say, on the other end, uh, we, we, we'd like to have more people like that who want to join the civil service and help us to uh, improve our relationship, in this case, with China. With respect to Mr. Salil, we have been very clear in the House of Commons. He is a Canadian. We will provide him all the How consular assistance. How come the ambassador assistance. didn't seem to know that? I, with everything that's going on, I must confess that I did not have a chance to look at the, the, uh, the questioning and the answers. But uh, one thing is clear is that uh, Mr. Silo is a Canadian. We will offer him all the consular assistance like we would do. And let's be clear to those who are watching us, uh, the release of the two Michael, Michael Spaver, Michael Kovrig, and seeking clemency for Mr. Schallenberg, and all the other consular cases we have in China, this is our top priority, Mercedes. I mean, everyone is seized of that. Uh, from the ambassador, I talk to him about three times a week. We're always advocating. In my call when I was getting the permit for us to land, I did raise the case of the Michaels to make sure that our Chinese counterpart understand that despite the fact that we now have to deal with emergency issues on the health side, the first and foremost priority of the Canadian government is to get the release of the two Michaels. And we're seeking clemency for Mr. Schallenberg and we'll advocate for Mr. Silil as well. I know on Iran, we're still waiting for those black boxes. The Iranian authorities have not turned them over. You're hoping they'll do so, that they'll give them to France. Do you trust that the black boxes are going to be in their original condition by the time they're finally turned over? 
Well, I judge Iran not by their words, but by their action, and I judge them day by day. Uh, we, uh, Minister Garner and I, went to meet with the leadership of the ICAO, the International Civil Agency Organization, which is a UN body uh, uh, regulating international civil aviation. Um, the Annex 13, as it's called, of the convention calls for the black box to be analyzed and downloaded uh, without delay. Uh, certainly after 30 days, I've been speaking to my counterpart, the Iranian foreign minister, and I said, listen, uh, it is clear now um, that the spirit and the words of the convention are not being respected, um, that Iran does not have either the technical capability or the expertise to uh, assess what's in the black box. So what we've offered as Canada is to say, Let's send those black boxes to Paris because we do know that uh, the French have the capability to do that and that Canada could be participating as well as Ukraine. So I, I said to him, I said, the, the best antidote to conspiracy is transparency. And, and I said, from the beginning, we had assurance for the leadership in Iran that this would be done in a transparent fashion. So what I urged my counterpart was for them to take a final decision and accept that there's no capabilities or sufficient capabilities in Iran to do that. And therefore, in the spirit of transparency, uh, bringing accountability, justice, and closure to the families, those black boxes need to be sent to Paris without delay. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Over 50 million people are locked down in China, and the new coronavirus is still spreading. In Wuhan, Chinese authorities are going door-to-door, -door checking people's temperatures and herding the sick into internment camps. The Canadian government has been praised by China for its reaction and not inciting panic, but it's also come under fire here at home for acting too slowly. We wanted to sit down with someone who knows what it's like to handle these delicate situations. Former Minister of Foreign Affairs John Baird joins me now from Toronto. Welcome to the program, Mr. Baird. Great to be with you. I'd like to start by asking you your thoughts on how the Canadian government has performed on the coronavirus file and the relationship with China. I think by and large it's been, uh, it's been competent. Uh, Minister Champagne is uh, an experienced uh, hand and uh, obviously we all want to work together in a nonpartisan way to, uh, to see us effectively address this from a public health point of view. Obviously it's incredibly challenging for people and their families to be quarantined for up to two weeks, uh, but it's important that we take significant action uh, to uh, stop the spread of this. And obviously uh, if we had had a good bilateral relationship with China that would have been uh, demonstrably more helpful, but obviously uh, uh, their Canada-China relationship is not in a very good place today. Do you think that that slowed down the evacuation of Canadian citizens? I, I don't think there's any evidence that, that, uh, that that's the case. On the broader relationship, how do you feel the government has been performing in handling China, particularly with the two men who've been in prison, the two Michaels, for over a year now? Yeah, listen, I mean, I think uh, I, every, all of us had high hopes for uh, the Trudeau government with respect to our relationship with China. And then there's been a, a series of uh, mistakes, whether it's, uh, you know, throwing this uh, progressive trade agenda on, uh, on the table at the last moment before we launched uh, free trade discussions, then they were boarded, uh, the refusal to, uh, to sell ACON. 
to approve that transaction and then obviously going from one mistake to another with respect to the Huawei and Meng Wanzhou uh, case. Um, this has not been a, a good day for Canada-China relationship and for uh, the government. Uh, one positive thing is I think the appointment of Dominic Barton uh, was a good choice. Uh, he's uh, smart, experienced, knows China well. Uh, and uh, we obviously want to see him uh, succeed in uh, getting the two uh, Michaels uh, released from, uh, from custody. Do you think that the government should approve Huawei to enter Canada's 5G market? You know, listen, I haven't had the uh, national security briefing with respect to that. Uh, neither did I when I was in uh, government. Obviously, uh, the relationship with China is tremendously important. We shouldn't take any decision lightly. But at the end of the day, national security is national security. It should be based on you know, solid intelligence and uh, uh, solid information, information that, uh, uh, that, I don't have, uh, that I don't have privy to. Mr. Baird, you conducted the review of what went wrong for the Conservatives in the past election. On Friday, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, came out and said that he called you and that he's encouraging you to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party. And there have been rumors starting to mill around Ottawa about this over the last couple of days, so I have to ask you the question on everyone's mind. Are you considering a run for Conservative leader? No, I think, like, uh, appreciate, obviously I appreciate the comments made by uh, Premier Kenney. Uh, he's doing a phenomenal job in uh, the province of Alberta and was a good friend and colleague when we served together in Ottawa. Uh, I think like all Conservative Party activists, uh, we're, uh, I'm uh, obviously taking calls, weighing my options, and uh, haven't, made any, uh, haven't made any decisions. So you are potentially considering a run then? You haven't ruled it out? I think I, I, I haven't ruled anything out, but uh, obviously it's uh, getting laid into the contest, so we'll uh, take it one day at a time. What do you think the Conservative Party needs going forward? What, I mean, you, you did the review, you took a look at what went wrong. What has to happen for the Conservatives to be able to win the next election? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, we've got to be uh, a modern Conservative Party. Uh, we've got to be true to our Conservative values and principles. Uh, I don't think we win when we're liberal light. Uh, I think we need to be uh, true blue. At the same time, we uh, failed remarkably uh, in Ontario and in the greater Toronto area. We need to have a vision uh, that uh, can appeal to uh, people in uh, the suburbs uh, of uh, every city in this uh, country. Uh, we need to put together a new coalition, and that's something that's incredibly important and obviously where we uh, fell short. Um, the fact that we won 10 seats in Quebec was a remarkable accomplishment. We made a foothold into, uh, uh, into Atlantic Canada, which was good, and obviously did extraordinarily well in, uh, in Western Canada. Uh, so I think uh, going forward, I certainly, as a, as a, as a, as a conservative activist, you know, want, to, uh, want to contribute to, uh, to establishing a true blue agenda that can uh, appeal to uh, voters in every part of the country. What went wrong, do you think, in Ontario in particular? Because it's such a key area that you have to win, as you say, and yet the Conservatives really weren't able to achieve what they needed to. Well, I mean, I think some of the uh, some of the social issues were definitely uh, uh, were definitely losers at the uh, at the doorsteps and uh, caused us to uh, to fall short. I mean, there were many many reasons. Um, uh, in, in Ontario, the economy is doing relatively well. Thank you, uh, thank you to the Ontario uh, government. Uh, and it's obviously very hard to uh, to pick up seats when uh, when. Uh, the economy is doing well. Uh, just to turn back to foreign affairs for a moment, the Prime Minister right now is in Africa. He's campaigning for a UN seat there on the UN Security Council. Uh, obviously not something your government was a big fan of. Do you think that there's a point to Canada trying to make sure it has that kind of international influence and getting more involved with Africa? You know, listen, I've spoken to numerous uh, diplomats, uh, retired diplomats from foreign affairs, uh, people from around the world. Uh, as uh, my read on the situation is, uh, we've lost this. It just isn't going our way. The Prime Minister is going to be going to Africa, and I guess uh, what's going to be on everyone's mind is blackface. And uh, that'll make it incredibly difficult to uh, obtain, uh, obtain support in that continent.
When it comes to Iran, your government was the one that pulled out Canadian diplomatic representation there, obviously, with the Iranian military shooting down the Ukrainian jet with the Canadians on board. There's now all kinds of complications trying to communicate with Iran, trying to get those black boxes. Do you think that maybe you should have kept the embassy open there? No, absolutely not. The most important responsibility that I had as foreign minister was uh, to ensure the safety and protection of our diplomats on the ground. We saw repeatedly, whether it's the U.S. Embassy, uh, whether it's the Canadian ambassador's residence in 1980, uh, they were both stormed and taken over, whether it's the British Embassy, uh, which was uh, stormed and looted, the Saudi Embassy was uh, burned to the ground. Uh, Iran does not respect uh, the Vienna Convention, and we can't count on them. We couldn't count on them to come to the aid of our diplomats, and uh, that's the the bottom line. Uh, Iran, this is an evil regime. Uh, they're uh, they're uh, you know supporting materially supporting terrorism in every single country in the region. Uh, they are having abysmal and deteriorating human rights record, and uh, their nuclear program uh, is something that is uh, the greatest threat to international peace and security. Uh, these are bad actors. Uh, you know, Prime Minister Kretschow withdrew an ambassador after a consular case went uh, south. That was the right move, and I think uh, the Prime Minister Harper and I made the right decision by uh, by uh, breaking off uh, relations uh, with uh, with the regime. We don't have any issue with the Iranian people. Our concern is with the mullahs uh, in Tehran um, and uh, uh, the uh, the takedown of this uh, of civilian jetliner um, it was an atrocity. Um, and uh, you know, I think you know, the government's been able to, through other channels, been able to uh, to deal with um, to deal with uh, the Iranian regime. Uh, but these people are not honest. They're not forthcoming. The fact that they're bearing dual nationals uh, against the wishes of the family is just atrocious. Uh, but I think, by and large, um, Minister Champagne's actions uh, since the downing of the jet were have been you know fairly competent and uh, good on him. John Bear, thank you for joining me. Good to be with you. As the number of coronavirus cases in China grows every day, forecasters are raising the alarm about the long-term economic impact of China in the global supply chain. During the 2003 SARS outbreak, the Chinese economy was paralyzed for a few months. But the country's contribution to the global economy has increased exponentially since then. It's now the world's second largest economy, and it produces a lot more than just T-shirts and plastic toys today. Joining me now is Perrin Beatty, President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Beatty, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's start with taking a look at, at what so far coronavirus has meant for the global economy and the potential threat that it poses. Uh, China, a major economic driver worldwide. There are entire cities being sit, shut down and cordoned off at this time. How serious a threat do you think this is to global markets? Well, it's serious, but I think it's important as well for us to be measured. Um, the fact is that when we look at China, they were going to see slower growth this year than, we, than they've seen in the past several years. So that's a concern to begin with. This will take a certain amount of, uh, of growth off that as well, so it'll slow things down that much further. The difference between this and, and the time of SARS is that today, China's role in the global economy is that it, it generates twice as, as high a percentage of global, of global GDP as it did back at the time of SARS. So it means then that in terms of demand in China and in terms of uh, China's ability to supply the global economy, uh, the impact is, is uh, more significant potentially. 
What are some of the key industries that this could affect? Because I, we all know you look at your clothes or your phone or your shoes or your Tupperware, and it often says made in China stamped on the back. Uh, there's parts of the supply chain yep. for things that are made here in Canada that will be affected. So what are some of the prime industries that are already being disrupted or industries where this could become very difficult? There are all sorts of manufacturers who rely on inputs from China, and they, they operate on a just-in-time basis. That is, uh, suppliers are going to supply them with the goods that they need just in time for them to put them into production. If you get your supply chain cut, that means they have to shut down your, your production facility. So there is a concern. We've seen around the world some instances where this has had an impact on manufacturing facilities. Uh, another example would be tourism. Uh, clearly, there are concerns now as to uh, what happens, particularly with tourism from China, but we've also seen it with cruise ships and others with people pulling back, so there will be an impact there. Uh, there's an impact in terms of the ability of Canadians who are doing business in China to be able to fly our people there and to meet with suppliers or potential customers in China. Uh, so in a whole range of different areas, there, there's an impact. I'd stress that it's relatively low at this point. Uh, some of the good news is we're seeing some slowing down in terms of the infection rate and the epicenter of the of the the virus, the real question is where does it go from here? And obviously we can be affected in Canada for Canadian businesses two ways. The first is uh, because we're dealing with China, what, what does this mean for supply chains and for supplying customers? But the other is if we find this breaking out of there and becoming a global pandemic, and if it were to spread to Canada the way in which uh, SARS did to Toronto, for example, uh, what does this mean for the ability of businesses to be able to operate? Um, and so we are certainly urging, particularly smaller businesses and medium-sized businesses, to develop contingency plans. So what do we do uh, if a supplier can't supply? Do we have alternative sources of supply? Or do, or do we have enough inventory to allow us to continue? If there's a problem with a public transportation system that employees can't get to work, is it possible for them to telecommute? Do you have a do you have an information tree in the office that informs your employees if for some reason they can't come in? Uh, if there's a problem in the schooling system that it shuts down and people have to stay home with their children, how do you keep your business running? These are all issues that that larger businesses uh, learn to deal with after SARS, uh, but often smaller businesses don't have those plans in place and they need to have them. Well, I think it's really interesting that you're talking about not only planning what happens if Chinese markets don't reopen, but what happens if businesses here start seeing some of the constraints that Chinese business has seen in terms of being able to get around or, or do trade or ship things or get on public transit. How overall would you describe the threat in particular to the Canadian economy if this epidemic continues to worsen and spread? Well, it, it, as we're looking at it today, it's, it's certainly manageable. Uh, yes, it does impact economic growth in Canada uh, in a negative way, but it's something that, that we can overcome and that we can manage, and we will still see positive growth through the year. Uh, at this point, we simply don't know what's going to happen in terms of the spread of the contagion and uh, whether or not it's possible to contain it. Our public health authorities learned an enormous amount from SARS, and they're responding exceptionally well. Uh, but we're going to have to feel our, our way along. But, but Mercedes, one of the, the, the key points here is this may or may not turn out to be a pandemic. But there is no doubt that there will be pandemics in the future. Mr. Beatty, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson.